I'm Mark Pegram. I'm the Associate Director for Clinical Research at the Stanford Comprehensive Cancer Institute uh, here in Palo Alto, California. I'm also Director of the Breast Oncology Program at Stanford as well. Um, my fellowship training was done in Dennis Slayman's lab at UCLA. Uh, my project was to uh, do preclinical testing of trastuzumab, both as a single agent and in combination with antiestrogens, as well as combination with chemotherapy. That led to phase one, two, and three clinical trials that ultimately won a regulatory approval for trastuzumab globally. Uh, I've run a very large research program at uh, Stanford, both in the clinic and in the laboratory. Um, I have about 190 uh, clinical research employees across the center, uh, so that keeps me very busy uh, because in the capacity as Associate Director for Clinical Research, I uh, have governance over all tumor types for all clinical trials in the whole institute, not just breast cancer. So it's a, it's a very busy service and um, keeps me out of trouble. Um, in terms of the HER2-CLIMB trial and Tocatinib in particular, uh, one of the things that really excited me about the molecule initially was its high selectivity directly against HER2 and not against EGF receptor. Uh, for example, the uh, binding affinity for Tocatinib against the HER2 receptor kinase domain is 8 nanomolar, whereas for EGF receptor kinase domain, it's 10,000 nanomolar. And remember, the lower the uh, binding affinity, the more tightly the drug binds. And this was hugely exciting because all of the existing HER2 kinase inhibitors that are FDA approved, which would include lapatinib and neratinib, are plagued by off-target toxicities because both of those molecules hit EGF receptor hard, and consequently, there's a lot of EGF receptor toxic toxicity, namely rash and diarrhea, which can be really uh, troubling for patients and for clinicians alike because it's difficult to manage. And so, um, you know, the idea that this may be so highly selective against HER2 and we won't have the concern of the off-target effects like diarrhea and rash, uh, that is a huge theoretical advantage. The other thing that I found exciting about the uh, tucatinib data was uh, simply the, the early phase clinical trial, you know, dose escalation and phase two data that had such high response rates when combined with trastuzumab and capecitabine. Uh, the response rate from the phase two uh, trial was 61%. And, at least anecdotally, in that trial, there were responders in the central nervous system. That is, patients with HER2-positive brain meds had objective responses in the brain with tucatinib-based treatment. So the fact that you get such a high response rate, including the, the most difficult HER2-positive patient to treat, which are those with brain metastasis, and remember, half of all metastatic HER2-positive patients get brain metastasis, um, you know, that's, that's a huge advantage for this molecule. Um, and also, finally, uh, the tolerability in the phase two data, the fact that tucatinib can be feasibly, you know, from a clinical perspective, be combined with a chemo agent, in this case, capecitabine, um, is remarkable. Um, not all HER2 TKIs play well with chemo combinations. Uh, most are not feasible, frankly with the uh, competitor TKI HER2 compounds. But with the CADNIB, it was easy and straightforward to integrate this with an already active existing clinical regimen of uh, trastuzumab plus capecitabine. So those were the key points that piqued our interest.
interest in the early days of uh, tocatinib development. The uh, trial, in summary, was uh, just over 600 patients who were randomized in a two-to-one fashion, and these are patients who were heavily pretreated that had prior trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and TDM1, so that's quite a heavily pretreated population. But they're randomized two-to-one in favor of the tocatinib combination, which is tocatinib plus trastuzumab plus capecitabine versus placebo plus trastuzumab and capecitabine, so placebo control is a strength of the trial, as was the high sample size of over 600, which was deliberately increased by a protocol amendment to deliberately increase the statistical power of the trial. So that's another strength of this study design was the fact that the investigators deliberately, under a protocol amendment, expanded the sample size um, to better power key secondary clinical endpoints. the other strength of this trial is that uh, it was a global study design, included North America, Europe, as well as Australia. So it's a global effort, not just based on one continent or another or, or in one uh, racial subgroup or another. So the statistics were robust. The uh, key baseline demographics were well balanced between both of the uh, arms, both the experimental arm and the placebo control arm, uh, were well balanced for age, world region, performance status, de novo stage 4 disease at diagnosis, steroid receptor status, presence of rapid brain metastasis, and number of prior lines of therapy. Um, the progression-free survival data was the key primary endpoint, and it had a very robust uh, efficacy signal, even in such a heavily pre-treated patient population, with a hazard ratio of 0.54, with uh, four zeros after the decimal on the p-value, and a clinically meaningful shift to the median PFS from 5.6 to 7.8 months. So to get that kind of an efficacy signal on the first interim analysis uh, of a pivotal trial in such a heavily pretreated population is remarkable. Um, the other remarkable finding was the consistency of the data in the subgroups analysis on the forest plot, irrespective of age, race, hormone receptor status, presence of brain metastasis, performance status or world region, all of the hazard ratios were essentially exactly the same in all those subgroups, uh, you know, and and completely overlapped with the intent-to-treat population. So the remarkable consistency of the data is very satisfying uh, to our statisticians. Uh, The other uh, huge strength of this trial was that um, despite such a heavily pre-treated population, this study had an overall survival benefit, and that is surprising for a first interim analysis in such a heavily pretreated HER2-positive metastatic patient population. The CNOS benefit in patients this sick at baseline is truly remarkable, and the hazard ratio on the OS signal was 0.66 and two zeros after the decimal on the p-value, so it was highly statistically significant already. And the shift to the median was also clinically gratifying, you know, almost a five-month shift to the median in overall survival. So that is, uh, is going to extremely impress practicing clinicians and patients as well um, because that's, at the end of the day, that's what oncology is all about. Um, the other really uh, remarkable finding, in my opinion, was this key secondary endpoint of progression-free survival in the patients who had brain metastasis at study entry. 
The hazard ratio on that was also 0.48, so it's similar to the 0.5 and change of the intensive tree population. Again, four zeros after the decimal, which is incredible for a subgroup. And also, the median PFS shifted from 5.4 to 7.6 months in the brain met subset, and that's virtually the same as the intensive tree population. So that's really um, amazing that the patients with brain mets, which is the most feared complication in oncology, not just breast cancer, not just HER2-positive breast cancer, but all of oncology, this is a most feared complication clinically. These patients did as well as the patients without brain metastasis, and that's really a first uh, in data sets from, from my perspective. And the subgroup analysis in the brain met subset population also showed very high consistency of the data across all of the uh, uh, classical patient uh, demographic and clinical pathologic uh, characteristics. Um, the response rate was also increased in the patients who were randomized to catnib from 23% to 41%. Again, this is what patients and doctors want to see. They want to see tumors shrink in the clinic in real time. When you get CT scans after treatment and go over it with the patients and their families, you know, stable disease is nice. It beats progression, but Patients really want to see the tumors shrinking, and so did practicing clinicians. And the statistics on this were, again, four zeros after the decimal and the p-value for the objective response rate. So that's very robust. In terms of feasibility, the adverse events were really uh, kind of de rigueur for an oncology, uh, you know, uh, uh, regimen. Um, all of the adverse events are reversible. Uh, the antidiarrheal medication use was the same in both arms, three days per cycle, and this is in a trial that did not have any antidiarrheal prophylaxis. In clinical practice, I'm sure clinicians will use some anti-motility drugs prophylactically with this regimen, so the data that's published in the New England Journal paper and is in the package insert will no doubt be improved upon in the community where people will reflexively use some antidiarrheal prophylaxis uh, in advance. That was not a feature of this trial. So the fact that each arm only had three days per cycle and it was the same in both arms, I think is also remarkable. Finally, uh, just to summarize, the strengths are that it was a global study, innovative study design with two-to-one randomization, allowing prior CNS metastasis is innovative. Most studies exclude those patients because they have such a poor outcome. Uh, deliberate increase in the sample size to increase statistical power was a strength. A median of four prior lines of therapy prior to study entry is a, a very heavily pretreated patient population, and some patients had up to 14 to 17 lines of prior therapy, believe it or not. Hitting all three key clinical endpoints, PFS, OS, and PFS in the CNS metastasis subset, hitting all three of those with statistical confidence at the first planned interim analysis is truly remarkable. The consistency of the data we already talked about the PFS point estimate and the CNS subset, we almost talked about how it was equal to the intent to treat population. The feasibility factor, in fact, uh, to catnip discontinuation, which is really a robust way to test how tolerable a drug is. So to catnip discontinuation was less than that of capecitabine in this study. So that tells you that it's already, you know, better than an FDA-approved drug uh, historically, that is capecitabine, in terms of safety uh, and tolerability. What are the possible real-world applications of these findings in practice? Uh, the data are clearly practice-changing. Uh, Ticatinib will be a new standard of care option in HER2-positive 
metastatic breast cancer. Clinicians and patients alike are impressed by the overall survival results. That's what they all seek to achieve uh, first and foremost. And then they like to see their tumor shrink, as I mentioned. So that's a, a home run for this data set. So that's, that's my overall take of the uh, pivotal trial data. The real excitement about tecatinib is its potential for further integration into the therapeutic armamentarium. You know, the fact that it has such a robust efficacy signal and has clinical feasibility and clinically meaningful endpoints in such a heavily pretreated population, including brain meds, is remarkable. So the key now is uh, we would expect that this drug would work even better in earlier lines. So we'd like to move this drug earlier in the treatment sequence and move it closer to upfront. So earlier lines, and this can be done, for example, by combining it with something other than capecitabine and trastuzumab, which is usually a salvage last-line approach. Um, so you could combine it for, with TDM1, for example, and those studies are ongoing. And if that approach is successful, then we could consider using tecatinib in combination with TDM1 in an earlier line and might expect to see even better efficacy and maybe even a bigger overall survival benefit, for example. And also, if the TDM1 combination proves to be a success, there's no reason from my perspective why this couldn't be uh, envisioned as a combination with other HER2 antibody drug conjugates as well. For example, DS8201, uh, which was uh, uh, just approved by the FDA in the past few weeks. That is a trastuzumab deruxtecan. So uh, you could envision a combination with that molecule as well. Um, the other question in all the clinicians' minds is, could this be a replacement for neratinib in an extended adjuvant setting? Neratinib's label indication was extended adjuvant therapy for early-stage HER2-positive breast cancer, but that approach is plagued by the toxicity of neratinib, namely diarrhea. And so if this could replace neratinib in that capacity, it would be much better tolerated from a GI toxicity point of view and could be a neratinib replacement in that setting, at least in theory. Um, one could envision combining tecatinib with endocrine therapy against HER2-positive uh, triple positive patients, that is ERPR and HER2 positive patients, because there is uh, published data on combining, for example, aromatase inhibitors in combination with TKIs plus trastuzumab. Uh, and so you could do the same thing. You could do AI plus tecatinib plus trastuzumab, for example, as a non-chemo approach for a triple positive patient, especially an elderly patient who may not be a good candidate for chemotherapy, et cetera. That could be uh, a winning combination. And there is regulatory precedent for this, the letrozole patented combination was approved by the FDA back in, I believe, 2009 or 2010. So that's historical precedent uh, of, the, of this approach. And so that would be an interesting prospect for the future. I'd also like to know if tecatinib has activity against any of the HER2 kinase domain mutants. There are rare mutations in HER2 negative patients. Uh, that still have mutations in the kinase domain, point mutations in the kinase domain of the HER2 gene. Uh, and these are non-amplified cases, typically. Um, this patient population is enriched amongst lobular breast cancer types. These HER2 kinase mutations are seen in other diseases as well, not just breast cancer. Uh, so you see them every once in a while in other tumor types, lung cancer, colon cancer, et cetera. So the next question would be, would these work uh, as well as neratinib does, for instance, against 
uh, some of these mutations. That's a very interesting prospect for the future. And then finally, as I mentioned, um, both HER2 gene amplification as well as these HER2 mutations are seen in multiple other disease states, gastric cancer, ovarian cancer, GI tumors, salivary gland cancer, bladder cancer, biliary tree cancers, et cetera, all can have HER2 amplification. And so one wonders, could this new HER2-specific TKI have activity beyond breast cancer and might have applicability uh, in other disease states uh, because of its uh, you know, ease of use with a oral rather than administration. So it's very convenient with, for patients to not have to have intravenous treatments. Um, it's well tolerated, um, particularly as a single agent. And if it can have activity against multiple tumor types, and we pick these mutations and gene amplification events up all the time now on foundation one and even circulating tumor DNA assays that are commonly used in the clinic now. Um, so we see these all the time. And uh, it, this could be a new treatment option for those patients as well.